beginning with verse 16 of chapter 1 to the end of the chapter. James chapter 1, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless." Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Well, may the Lord help us to understand this portion of Scripture this morning. You can be seated. We began last time I spoke to look at this letter that James, the brother of the Lord, wrote to some Jewish Christians that had been scattered about because of persecution, scattered out of Jerusalem, dealing with being in a strange situation, I'm sure, uprooted from their homes, their families, their livelihood, and certainly experiencing something of reproach and injustice and humbling conditions because of the persecution they were receiving, and uh, so, so James talks to him about the various trials that they were going through. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. But James was really much more concerned with their reaction to these difficulties than the difficulties themselves. It was not the un- undergoing of trials and difficulties, but the temptation to sin that uh, was the real serious danger to him. Uh, I'm sure he was concerned about the trials, but he was more concerned about their reaction, their wrong response to those trials. And we can see from the letter that that wrong response included things like unbelief, anger, jealousy, prejudice, 
self-pity, selfish ambition, that type of thing. So in the midst of that type of a setting, we find James exhorting them to exercise faith, true faith in the midst of their trials. So we said that much of this letter has to do with the subject of authentic faith. Let me just go over very briefly what we looked at last time in this area of authentic faith. Authentic faith will rejoice in trials because it realizes that the testing that they're going through develops steadfastness, and steadfastness will ultimately make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what James says. How do we get to being in the image of Christ? Well, one of the ways that God uses is trials and testings. We said that uh, in trials, authentic faith will pray to God for wisdom. It will not give in to doubt and being double-minded, but it will look to God for understanding. How do I deal with this trial? How do I make it through? What your will in this, Lord? Authentic faith will pray to God for wisdom. It will also let the Christian who is weak and despised in this world glory in their high position as a child of God. They don't get under it because of what they're going through. They realize how much God has given them just by bringing them into his kingdom and what he has for them, their high position as a child of God. It will let even the well-to-do Christian realize that they should not put any confidence in their riches and good fortune, which will soon pass away. Authentic faith will realize that the person who perseveres under trials is blessed because they will soon receive the crown of life. They have, as the saying goes, they have their eye on the prize. Authentic faith will recognize that the trials are sent by God for our good, but our temptations arise from our own wrong desires. Authentic faith will remember that God bestows every good thing and every perfect gift. He loves to give good gifts to those who put their trust in him. And lastly, we noted that authentic faith will remember that God has already given us really the greatest thing, the greatest gift, the greatest good gift possible by sending his son to die for our sins and bringing us into this new relationship and into his kingdom through our spiritual rebirth through his word of truth. So that's just a brief summary of what we looked at last time. So we want to take up this morning in verse 19, actually, with uh, more of this exhortation to authentic faith. God had changed these Jewish people into believers in Christ, in, into the, those who would believe in the Messiah, the promised Messiah. He did that through his word of truth, we're told. I take that to mean the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel is the word of truth. Uh, let's just flip back real quickly to Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. Colossians 1, 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So there you have it. They, they have heard the gospel, which is the word of truth. They heard the word of truth, which is the gospel. So 
when he's talking about the word of truth here, he's talking about the gospel. The Spirit of God had taken the word of God to bring forth children of God who would glorify God. That's what was happening there in the early church. The Spirit of God taking the word of God and bringing forth children of God. Now, when I say that the word of truth is the gospel, I'm thinking of that, an understanding of the gospel in its broad context. The fulfillment of all the Old Testament, all that the Old Testament spoke concerning God's reconciling of people to himself. Um, In other words, this word of truth that James was speaking uh, about includes an understanding of the new covenant in Christ's blood, especially the revelation of Christ's love for them and their new life in the spirit. That's what we're talking about. That's that's all part of the gospel, you see. We shouldn't think narrowly when we think about the gospel. The the proclamation that was going forth from from God's spokesman, the apostles, was a, a broad understanding of what God was doing in Christ. Since this letter from James is one of the earliest New Testament books, some, <clears throat> some commentators say it may have been the earliest New Testament book. Well, either way, it's either early or the earliest. Since that's the case, these Jewish Christians were dealing mainly with what they have heard from God's anointed spokesman. Of course, they had the Old Testament writings, but these were interpreted to them and expanded on by what Christ had said and by what his apostles were proclaiming. That's why there's such an emphasis in this section we're looking at on the word they had heard. Not the word they'd read, but the word they'd heard. You see, they couldn't turn to the New Testament because there wasn't any New Testament. This is one of the first books of the New Testament. So James tells them, They need to be quick to hear, quick to hear what God is now saying to them through Christ, through the life and example of Christ, the teaching of Christ, and what the apostles, his spokesmen, were telling them. They needed to be quick to hear. There was still a lot they had to learn concerning this new faith in Christ that they had, and uh, they needed to be ready listeners to the word of truth. Just because God had brought them forth, and he had, James says he's brought them forth by the word of truth, but just because he'd brought them forth didn't make them instantly mature. In fact, as we noted last time, there was a lot of immaturity, uh, a lot of things they didn't understand correctly. They didn't understand even how the word of God should affect their lives in certain areas. That's why James wrote this. They needed to continue to humbly receive the word that had been implanted, which is able to save their souls. Save them then, save them in the future, continual, right up until the time when God takes them. So humbly receiving. Verse 19, This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Verse 19 introduces one of the main subjects, major themes of the book of James, the sinfulness and destructiveness of the uncontrolled tongue. The sinfulness and destructiveness of the uncontrolled tongue. 
James tells us here that one of the first things we need to do with the tongue is to slow it down. Instead of talking, listen. First listen, then speak. This is often just the opposite of what we do in the midst of trials and the pressures of difficult situations. And that's what they were in, trials, difficult situations. And so what happens? We talk too much and don't listen enough. Sadly, we are slow to listen and quick to speak, especially quick to speak in anger when things aren't going our way. We don't want God or anyone else to tell us anything. Hasty speech and unwillingness to listen and unrighteous anger often all go together. That's what he's speaking on here, what he's telling us. You know, listening becomes pretty difficult when you're angry. Have you noticed that? A quick-tempered person is likely to speak without listening or thinking through things, and often what comes out are harsh, angry words. The book of Proverbs tells us this, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. That means you're slow to speak, not just shooting your mouth off. Slow to speak. Proverbs 17:27 He who restrains his words has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding Don't we often regret words we've spoken in haste especially when we're worked up One Christian minister wrote this he said almost daily as a pastor I see the value that good listening has for the church's purity within and the church's mission without. He said good listening is very important within the church, amongst one another, and in our mission out into the world. Good listening. He goes on to say, when disagreements occur in the church, over and over I have seen that what great damage is done to people, to relationships, and to the effectiveness of our ministries when we are quick to argue our position, defend our views, and push our opinions. I have also seen what great good is done when we discipline ourselves to postpone defending our own views and judging others' views while we concentrate on listening and giving a full hearing in order to understand the other side of the conflict. We usually find that the conflict is more easily resolved. Good listening is a protection against dissension. So just the importance of listening and not being so ready to speak our mind. In difficult times, in trying times, in times of disagreement with others, Authentic faith, that's what we're talking about. Authentic faith will be quick to hear what God would tell us and what others are saying, slow to speak its own mind, and especially slow to react in anger. Why is that? Well, one of the big reasons that James brings out is because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. 
It's not going to advance the kingdom in your own life or in the person that's on the receiving end of what you're saying. James recognizes what trials can do to us, that they can stir up fear and self-pity and envy and confusion and especially anger. These results result in behaviors such as fighting, may not be physical but verbal, judging and attacking. And he says, he warns us, such things as that do not achieve the righteousness of God. They do not bring about the righteous life that God desires for us personally or for the person that's on the receiving end of our ill temper. Being quarrelsome, argumentative, judgmental, mad, or vindictive because of difficulties that happen in our lives will not bring about righteousness in ourselves or in any other person. God's righteousness will not be produced from our anger. I put that in bold in my paper. God's righteousness will not be produced from our anger. So again, let me just emphasize this. Authentic faith will be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This might sound a little trite, but if you're worked up, you should shut up. James then goes on to tell us, or tell these Jewish believers, to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, and in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save their souls. Now, I think it's significant here that in the verse before, he starts out, this you know, verse 19, this you know, my beloved brethren. So he calls them beloved brethren. Nevertheless, there was still filthiness, that is moral impurity and wickedness to be dealt with in their lives. So he calls them beloved brethren, but he says in verse 21, therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. So what does that mean? They could be beloved brethren and still have wickedness and moral, moral impurity. Well, I think it partly means that they were yet carnal in some of their ways. So there is such a thing as a carnal Christian. But James said that that type of thing needs to be dealt with, not accepted. That's the big difference in what's often presented today. You don't settle down in that condition. James says, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Putting aside, I think, means repent. Turning away from, getting rid of those things. One commentator said this, this verse calls for us to repent of all moral filth in our lives. It includes not only sensational sins, but also everyday evils like a complaining attitude, a jealous spirit, a deceitful or gossipy way of speaking, or a rebelliousness against authority. Like numerous other biblical statements, this one makes clear that repentance is not merely a sorrow for one's sin, 
but more fully a sorrow that moves us to make changes in our lives. Putting aside, you see, putting aside those things. Biblical repentance is a change of direction, a turning around, a choice to repudiate immorality and cry out to God, I don't want to be like this anymore. That's the attitude that James said we should have towards this type of thing if it's still in our, if this is still a reality in our life, filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Putting aside, dealing with, repenting of those type of things. In the place of this filthiness and wickedness, we need to humbly accept God's word, which has been implanted within us. So we put aside those bad things and we receive this good thing, the word of God, which has been implanted within us. Now, I think that humbly, or he says humbly receive, I think that means we need to have a humble receptivity, a humble teachability, you might say, to the Holy Spirit's application of truth in our lives. Another, this is another way of saying being quick to hear, you see. Be quick to hear what God has to say to us. Where there is this good soil of humble teachability, the seed of God's word which has been implanted in us will grow and bring about the salvation of our souls. But James says this must involve more than just being a hearer of the word. We need to humbly receive the word, he says. And he goes on to say we must be doers of what we hear from God. Now this is a big theme here and later on in this letter. For these Jewish Christians, this meant especially what they'd heard about what Christ had done for them through his, his inspired apostles. What James is concerned to communicate in this section, 22 through 27, is that there must be a real hearing and doing of the word of God. To be a hearer only without doing the word of God, he says, is an act of self-deception. Now, this is pretty strong stuff here. He says, if you're a hearer only, now it's not saying hearing's wrong, you need to hear. But if you're a hearer only, he says, you're deceiving yourself. A mere hearer is deceiving him or herself. What does it mean to be deceived? It means that we think something is true when it's not. That's what it means to be deceived. So what is he talking about? In this case, it would be being deceived about thinking that we have faith in Christ when we really don't. We do not have, back to this authentic faith thing, we do not have an authentic faith. It's amazing to me in this little section that we're looking at here, beginning with verse uh, verse 16, he says, Do not be deceived. And then if you go over to 22, he says, The one who's merely a hearer deludes themselves. What does it mean to be deluded? It means you mislead yourself. You deceive yourself. And then he says in verse 26, If you don't bridle your tongue, 
That person deceives their own heart. So he's talking about don't be deceived, don't be deluded, don't be misled here. It's very important, he says, to have an authentic faith. And that involves being a doer of what you hear. James uses the analogy of a man who looks in a mirror and then goes away without thinking any more about his appearance. You look at yourself, comb your hair, and go off to do whatever you're going to do that day. He forgets what he's seen because it seems no longer useful to him. Once he's finished looking, he goes about his daily activities. He forgets what he saw because he does not consider it to be essential information for, for his life. And James is telling us that if we hear the word of God but do not do what it says, that's the way we're treating the word of God, as if it was useless to us after we've heard it. We hear it and just go on. We just walk away, forget what we've heard. If we do that, James says, we're deceiving ourselves. First of all, we're deceived about the very nature and purpose of the Word of God. It is not just to inform us. It's to transform us. It's to be taken into our lives daily in the decisions we make and in the actions we perform. Secondly, we're deceiving ourselves about our very faith in Christ. We think we put our faith in Christ and in reality we have not. We have not because we do not do what he says. We do not do what the word says. In verse 25, let me just read it here. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. He's making a contrast now to this person that looks in the mirror Briefly, walks away and forgets. He says, the way that the person with authentic faith deals with the word of God is that he looks intently at it. He abides by it. That means he continues in it, not forgetting it, but becoming an effectual doer. See the contrast there? Instead of going away and forgetting, we continue to look at it we do not forget, and we always apply what we hear. That's what authentic faith does, or seeks to always apply what we hear. Notice what he calls the word in this verse. The word he kind of switches over here a little bit. You've got to kind of catch this, because he's been talking about the word, the word of truth, and, and the, the word that's been implanted in our, in our lives. Now he calls it the perfect law, the law of liberty. Still talking about the word of God. But he calls it here the perfect law, the law of liberty. Liberty. Why does he do that? I think because he wants to emphasize the importance of understanding the word of God, especially the Old Testament, the word of God, in light of all that the Son of God has said and done and what, were, what was being taught by the the apostles. The perfect law, the law of liberty, I think, is God's law as it is explained by Christ and fulfilled in Christ. 
The phrase, the law of liberty, is unique to James in the New Testament. The only other place it's found is in, in James chapter 2, verse 12. Just flip over here real quickly. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. So there's that phrase, the law of liberty. <clears throat> That's really a pretty unique phrase because often when we think of law, we think of something that kind of curbs our freedom, keeps us from the liberty that we would like. Well, that, James says, no, that's totally wrong. He doesn't think that way. And the reason he doesn't is because of what Christ has done with the law. In the new covenant, in his blood, Christ has written the law upon his people's hearts. And as James said it earlier, he's, he's implanted it in our very souls, in our very lives. He's implanted it there. And James views the Christian as one who's been overwhelmed with the love of God shown in Christ and has been set free from the slavery to sinful passions and lusts. So it's the law of liberty that Christ came to proclaim. One commentator said it this way, this law of liberty, quote, is the law of the new covenant which Jeremiah prophesied would be written by God in man's inward parts and upon his heart. It is not, therefore, something imposed upon the believer from without in the form of a code of external rules or regulations. It's what God has put in you, you see. He's made you a new creature in the new covenant with a new heart. Think of this. This man, James, who called himself a bond servant, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, talks to us about the law of liberty. That would almost seem like a contradiction, wouldn't it? But he did that without any thought of contradiction. Because in the new covenant, the Spirit of Christ made obedience to Christ's words the desire of his heart. You see, it was not a contradiction to be a bond slave of Christ and to be walking in the law of liberty. God's word was on his heart, in his heart. Another commentator, I'm going to spend some time on this because I think it's important to get this nailed down, this, this perfect law, <clears throat> the law of liberty. Another commentator said, while the law of Christ in no way relaxes the stern demands of the law of unchangeable righteousness. It speaks in the heart as the law of one whose service is perfect freedom and makes his yoke easy and his burden light. <clears throat> doesn't relax the moral law of God at all. But nevertheless, because of what God's done in the heart, it makes his yoke easy and his burden light. Uh, let me read one more commentator. God's gracious acceptance of us does not end our obligation to obey him. It sets it on a new footing. No longer is God's law a threatening, confining burden. For the will of God now confronts us as the law of liberty, an obligation we discharge in the joyful knowledge that God has both liberated us from the penalty of sin, and given us his spirit, which gives us the power to obey his will. It's a law of liberty, you see. What are we talking about here? 
We're talking about new covenant, life in the spirit. That's what we're talking about, this law of liberty. Now, it's a, in embracing it's the reality of the life in the spirit of Christ, which is what the new covenant's all about. True freedom comes when we do what we were created to do, which is love others and God as Christ loved us. I'll read that again. True freedom comes when we do what we were created to do, which is love others and God as Christ loved us. This is the perfect law, you see, the perfect law, James calls it, because it was given to us by the perfect one who perfectly fulfilled it, and through our union with him will bring about our perfect conformity to it. It's the perfect law. The law of liberty. So let me say again that authentic faith will look intently at this perfect law, this law of liberty, will not go away from it, will not forget it, but will abide in it, will continue in it, being an effectual doer of it. If we do this, we have God's promise right here that we will be blessed in what we do. So let's just apply this to our situation here this morning, right here in this meeting. What this means is that it's not enough to come to this meeting and hear the Word of God. It's not enough to go home and read the Word of God. We must heed the Word of God. We must do the things that we hear and read. That's what James is saying. Otherwise, we're deceiving ourselves. We feel good about being here, feel good about reading the Word, but unless we do the Word, we're, we're, we're deceived. James, as I said last week, he likes to be severely practical. Severely practical. So, after he says we have to be doers, he explains, at least gives some examples now, this isn't a whole ball of wax. He's just saying, now, here's what I'm talking about. These are some examples of what we're talking about here. Examples, three examples of what this doing of God's word looks like in the life of a Christian. And each one of these are expanded upon later on in the letter. So this is kind of a little uh, introduction again to what uh, comes later in, in this uh, letter from James. Actually, the first one has already been introduced in 19, which is control of the tongue. He's already mentioned it. And this is one of the major teachings in this letter that James wrote, this thing of the tongue. We'll, we'll spend, as we go on in the weeks to come, we'll spend some more time on this because James does. We'll just say it this way, sinning with our tongue, with our speech, is no minor thing. James said it's a very big thing. We must be slow to speak. We must bridle our tongue as the image that uh, James uses here. If we think we have faith, if we think we're religious, but do not control our tongues, we're deceived. We're fooling ourselves. Not only that, James says our religion, our profession of Christianity is worthless. Now that's a pretty strong word, isn't it? Absolutely, 100% worthless. 
The image he uses is that of a bit and bridle, which are used by a person who rides a horse in order to control that horse. You have this bit and bridle and hold on to the reins and you control the horse that way. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Authentic faith will bridle the tongue. Authentic faith will control the tongue. Keep tight reins on their words. That's what a person with authentic faith will do. They'll keep tight reins on their words. Now, James goes into this a lot more in chapter 3, so I won't deal with it more here. But just to say that an uncontrolled tongue means our faith is worthless. That's what he's saying here, just in one little verse. He'll expand on it. But right now he's saying it's worthless and you're deceiving yourself if we don't control our tongue. You and I are deceiving ourselves. Well, he goes on to say that we might deceive ourselves in something like this and we might even deceive others in all the religious language we use. But there's no deceiving God. He's gonna, he, God knows exactly what he wants from us. And he says here, this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. I mean, that's what matters, right? What it looks like to God. Now, what it looks like to somebody else or even to ourselves. But pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our, our God and Father is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, again, this is just one example. He's just saying this is what, what true faith is like. He's not trying to give you a, a total picture of what faith does, but he's giving you some examples here to help the helpless and to avoid worldliness are two big areas, to help the helpless and to avoid worldliness. So he says, visit the orphans and widows. And I think that word is more than just occasionally stopping by. It means to look after, to care for, or just to help, to help the helpless. Of course, that's nothing new to the New Testament. God had very much to say about this prior to the coming of Christ. Let me just give you a few examples. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. So he's a father to the fatherless. That's why it's important, you know. It's pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and our God and Father. Well, he, he's a father of the fatherless. A judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. So that was Psalm 80 or 68.5. Then Psalm 82.2. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And he's speaking to his people here. How long will you do that? His professing people. And show partiality to the wicked. Here's what we're supposed to do. Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. And then 
Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. And then he tells what that means. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. So this is nothing new in the New Testament. And this idea of being deceived by having an outward form of religion and not carrying through on these things that are so important to God, that's nothing new in the New Testament either. In Jeremiah 4, 7, God says, Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We're, we're in church, you know. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds... If you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods uh, to your own ruin, then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I have given to your fathers forever and ever. This is pure and undefiled religion. So authentic faith will extend help to the helpless the widow, the orphan, the handicapped, the homeless, the stranger, those who are in true distress. That's what he says here. Visit the orphan and widows in their distress, their affliction, because they're in distress because they can't take care of themselves, you see. They need help. Authentic faith helps the helpless. Along with this, James tells us that we must keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. <clears throat> the world, we, I think we always need to kind of clarify what uh, the Bible's talking about when it uses the, the world in this way. It means the ungodly, unbelieving worldview. The lifestyle of those who seek to live without God. That's what the world is all about. We must keep ourselves from the world's contaminating influence which surround us it surrounds us on all sides I mean we walk through it all the time but he says keep yourselves unstained by the world we live in a polluted environment and I'm not talking about CO2 emissions well, there's something a lot worse to be concerned about as far as the pollution of this world. We're daily immersed in defiling things that will blemish our soul if we embrace them. And this is what James is saying here. We have to keep ourselves unstained by the world. The world will stain you if you embrace its way of thinking about things and the way of doing things. But James says, no, pure and undefiled religion We'll turn away from that type of thing. So authentic faith will seek to help the helpless of this world while at the same time keeping pure from the polluting influence of the world. It's a balance there, you see. We're not supposed to come out of the world in the sense of not being interacting with people. In fact, we're supposed to help the helpless at the same time keeping pure from the polluting influence of any wrong love of the things of this world. 
like the compassionate Christ we follow, we should seek to help the helpless. Like the spotless lamb who is our shepherd, we should seek to keep ourselves spotless from this world's sin. Put it in a nutshell, authentic faith will seek to be Christ-like. If we don't do that, we're deceived. If we're not seeking to be Christ-like, I mean, all the outward religious stuff, all the listening to the Word of God or reading the Word of God, if we're not seeking, really seeking, to be more like Christ, James says we're deceived. Well, one of the ways that the world seeks to corrupt, corrupt us is this, if we use its ways of discrimination and prejudice and personal favoritism, if we allow those type of things in the church. And that's what James takes up the next time in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So if you want to read ahead, that's what we'll look at. Lord willing, the next time we get together and look at James. So let me just say this in closing. By the grace of God, may we not be like those who go away and forget what we've heard this day. May God help us to look intently at his perfect law, the law of liberty, and continue in it, not being forgetful hearers, but effectual doers. He says, if we'll do that, we'll be blessed in what we do.